You are listening to MCC Votes and Seats, the podcast series of the Center for Political Science of Matthias Corvinus Collegium. We provide election insights with experts and politicians. Our guest today is Mr. Krista Datland from Norway. Krista is a freelance political scientist. I'm Shando Galai, head of MCC School of Social Sciences and History. In the forthcoming interview, we try to explore developments in the Norwegian party politics and get an insight into the outcome of last week's parliamentary election. On the 13th of November, after eight years in government, the centre-right parties were defeated. And Norway, we very likely see a return to the earlier coalition of the Labour, the Centre and the Socialist Left parties. Why non-Labour governments have historically been intermittent, sometimes short-lived, Anna Solberg's of the Conservative Höyre party uh, could now serve two full terms as Prime Minister. What were the most important achievements and failures of the centre-right government? And why did the Conservatives lose nine seats compared to the previous term, going down to 36 in a parliament of 169 seats? First and foremost, Solberg managed to hold together the coalition for eight years. This is the first time the centre-right has managed for so long. The previous record was five years. So that is an achievement in and of itself, I would say. But while Solberg has been a prime minister throughout, she has actually led four different coalitions. First, the Conservatives and the Progressive Party. Then they were joined by the Liberals, and they were later joined by the Christian Democrats. And then about a year and a half ago, the Progressive Party left. So we're talking about four different coalitions here. Further on, they got us safely through the COVID pandemic in a fairly well-organized manner, which I think in many ways was important to avoid politicizing the issue. There has, while there has been some discussions about the vaccine distribution and so on, the general picture in Norway is one of agreement and trust in the government's handling of the situation. As for political achievements, they have done what you would expect of a conservative government. They have lowered taxes considerably. I'm talking both the personal income tax and company taxes. There has been a number of regional reforms in the name of effectivization. The number of counties have been reduced from 19 to 11. The number of municipalities has been reduced from 428 down to 356. Not as much in percentage as counties, but this is because municipal fusions were dependent on people actually wanting it. There's also been a parallel reduction in the number of police districts, tax offices, etc. In many ways, the Norwegian government now works more efficiently for these reasons. Also, there has been increased road building, lower uses of toll roads, something that has been important for the Progressive Party. In terms of failures, well, one thing is that Solberg had an unstable coalition of uneasy friends. Some of these parties don't really like each other. And she did not manage to build a lasting cooperation. And now with the Christian People's Party out, or at least with the heavily reduced, it will be very difficult for her to build a new alternative to the centre-left. Further, the municipal reform did not achieve anything close to the reduction of municipalities as the government wanted. Once again, that was because it depended on the municipalities actually saying yes to it, mostly through referendums. The police reform cannot really be seen as a success. Police officers are happy. Most districts report a less visible police presence. This was not helped by a frequent change of justice ministers. It changed seven times during the time that the progressives held the ministry. And then there was an eighth minister who's just coming towards the end of her term now. That does not bode for stability. Another failure was a recent one. There has been a lot of work on drug reform aimed to decriminalize use and give better health care to those who struggle with drugs. It was well prepared and aimed to cover an important need 
but it failed to gather sufficient support in Parliament. And also the progressives, who are part at least of the parliamentary basis for the coalition, did not support it. As for losing nine seats, well, that obviously is a significant change. The support fell from around 25% in the last election down to 20%, so a significant reduction. In the polls in the last years, they have varied from 19% up to 29%. They were down to 20% just before the pandemic hit us. And then they received a boost going up to staying stable on 25% for close to a year. And then they seem to have lost May in, and lost steam in May when the election was coming close. Perhaps people are tired now. They have more, may have also lost a couple of percent due to supporters voting tactically, saying that, OK, it's more important that uh, the Liberals actually pass the threshold. So I will cast my vote for them instead of the Conservatives that I would ordinarily cast my vote for. I find it difficult to point at any particular thing to explain this, except perhaps that this campaign has been marked in my view at least, by, by the Solberg and the Conservatives never really finding the initiative. The major narratives have been run by the centre parties' protest against centralisation, and the left has managed to hold on to a narrative of increasing economic differences that they want to do address. Also, the climate issues did not really play to their advantage. The main challenger, Labour Party, remained the single largest party with 48 representatives in Parliament, but scored its third lowest result of the past 100 years. How to assess this result, and what is your opinion of the party leader, Jonas Gar Störe, the expected Prime Minister, a former foreign minister and health minister, uh, a millionaire of his family business? Yes, uh, well, judged by tra- the traditional domination in Norwegian politics, obviously it's not a good result. But given the situation, I think it's possible to argue that it has been a success this time. They beat the polls, they climbed up from, they were down to 20% in January and came up to 25, no, 26.3% in the elections. And I would split it down into several factors to sort of judge whether this was a success or not. One is, of course, their own result, and we've seen that they're not good as such. But another one would be the collective results for the left or the centre-left versus the alternative, the right. And of course, within that, they would want to get a majority for the potential coalition parties, meaning Labour, the centre party and the socialist left, without having to be dependent on the Greed party or the Reds. And if you look at the situation in January, they were equal in the polls with Centre Party, actually scoring lower. Come the elections, they're almost double the size of the Centre Party, 26.3% versus 13.5%. And neither the Socialist Left nor Red, the alternative leftist parties, did as well in the elections as the polls indicated. They were both a bit down compared to the polls. So all in all, I would say that This was a good result because it places Labour clearly as the dominant party. It's the largest party in Parliament. It's definitely the dominant party in the coalition that we expect to be formed. And the coalition has a majority. They will not be dependent on support parties. So if they can agree, they can run the show. As for Jonas Gastöre, he's an interesting person. He took over after Jens Stoltenberg, who dominated Norwegian politics for a long time. And of course, it took time to come out of his shadow. He has an interesting background for a Labour leader. He comes from a wealthy family. He has inherited more than 140 million Norwegian kroner. He's a Christian. His wife was recently ordained as a priest. So this is an unusual background for a Labour leader. He is very well educated, studied both in France and the US. And he says that it was during his stay in France watching the contrast between French and Norwegian society uh, that actually took him to the Labour Party 
saying that to me, Labour's values, a strong belief in community and justice were decisive. He was actually considering for a short uh, while working for the Conservative Party as a foreign policy advisor, but decided against it. And instead, he started off working as an advisor for the Labour government. And then he was quickly picked up by the party and made foreign minister in 2005 and held that position for seven years. And then he was health minister for a year. Then he took over as a leader in 2014. As a person, he is diplomatic and soft-spoken. He's not a man of big words. Stoltenberg, as I said, he stepped down as a leader in 2014. He went on to become a chairman of NATO. So Stöhr took over, had some big shoes to fill, and he quickly hit some internal trouble in the party. There were some internal conflicts that he had to deal with, and you can argue whether he did that well or not. It was built difficult to build a solar cooperation at the situation as the situation was then, because the two coalition parties that had been part of the Stoltenberg government well, both of them needed to focus on their own issues and to rebuild, particularly the socialist left, which had lost a lot of support in government. So it wasn't really the time to, to talk about forming an alternative government right now. They, they all needed time. In terms of personal popularity, I think he's had a good campaign. Going back a year, Störe trailed Solberg in the polls when asked when people were asked about who would you prefer as a prime minister. But during the spring and the summer, he came past Solberg. And also clearly ahead of Bedum, the centre party leader, who suddenly indicated that he wanted to be a prime minister at the time when the centre party was doing very well at the polls. Thank you. The centre party historically participated in centre-right governments, but in 2005, it teamed up with the left instead. This time, the centre won nine additional seats, making it uh, 28 in total. What lies behind this relative success, and what keeps the centre aligned with the left? Well, the parties in the centre, which basically means that they can go left and right. They represent uh, agrarian interests historically, and these days the interests of the periphery, the districts in general. The centre-periphery axis is a very strong in Norwegian politics, and very often you would find that the periphery has won. You can see it by... Roads, for instance. Norway has a very limited motorway network, but good roads in places where few people live. And this is partly due to the centre party. As a small party, they had to cooperate to achieve power. And they have been part of numerous coalition governments. And from the 60s to the 19s, always with the centre parties or other central parties or with the right. They've always sought power. They're very good, at least known to be very good at political horse trading, at negotiations and getting what they need. But there's always been a tension with the Conservatives and also later with the Progressive Party. In 1990, the EU question made the centre party leave a centre-right coalition government effectively handing power to the Labour government. And the 90s gave us later Labour governments or a pure centre party coalition, the three parties of the centre, not the Conservatives. The new centre-right coalition of 2001 did not include the centre party, so they were already on the move. And they moved across the blocks to seek formal cooperation with Labour. And this led to the coalition government uh, with Labour and Socialist Left from 2005 to 2013. And while the Socialist Left lost a lot of support during its time in government, centre parties' uh, support for Stable. The Centre Party is a pragmatic party. They're focusing on results for the districts. And they see this numerous reforms under the Solberg as part of a centralization project. And they've been very good at, at telling this narrative that the districts, the periphery is under threat from the Solberg government, and we need to counter that. And that has been their major narrative throughout the last parliamentary period. They've been very vocal about this, the spearheaded protests against it, leading to strong growth in support with the top in January, when the polls had them at almost 21%.
higher than Labour, actually. At the time, they suddenly fronted its leader as a potential prime minister. This move seems to have backfired a bit, and centre party support dwindled during the campaign, but they still made a good election at 13.5%. But it's, it's a third lower than they stood to gain in the polls earlier this year. Like I said, as a party, they're very focused on results for the districts. And that is what really governs where, which way they go. They will go where they can get what they want. That would be in the centre-left coalition. I see. The third expected partner in this new coalition government is the Socialist Left Party, which gained two more seats and has now 13 MPs. The Socialist Left had paid quite dearly for participating in the previous governing coalitions of Labour and centre parties between 2005 and 2013, when they nearly fell out of Parliament. What can this party win and lose if participating in a similar coalition government again. It is true that they almost fell out of parliament two elections ago. They struggled to maintain their identity while in government. And it's actually been called afterwards the socialist left trap, meaning that for a new party that has never been, go- been in government to go in and then sometimes sacrificing their, their principles for the greater good could actually backfire. They claim to have learned from the experience. Holding power taught them a lot. uh, And I think they enjoyed holding power, but they've seen the dangers of it. So this time they will go into the negotiations with with much clearer priorities and be clear on when to compromise and when to say no. They also aim to put the coalition agreement out to vote among party members before they actually go for it to ensure that they have proper support. In the coalition, we can probably expect the main battles within the coalition to be fought between the socialist left and the centre party on issues such as climate, petrol taxes, protection of wildlife, where they really stand quite far apart. But they also have common causes, like scepticism towards the EU and the EEA agreement, the municipal organisation and so on. The socialist left claim to have learned from the experience, and you could probably expect them to be more cynical this time around. After more than 60 years, the Christian Democratic Party fell out of Parliament. Why? And how do you see their chances to climb back? Well, their support has been declining for many years. They were stable around 8-9% in the 70s and 80s. They had a top in, in, uh, towards the end of the 90s. But for the last five elections, they've been, they've been in a clear decline. In 2017, they only just passed the 4% threshold. Then they scored 4.2%. This time, they just came in just below at 38 which means that they, instead of getting eight mandates, they got the three regional mandates. The core voters are older than the average population, and religion is less important to younger people. So one explanation is simply that the supportings are, are dying out. In the coalition, they actually elected to stand outside of the Solbad government for six years, mostly out of reluctance to have a formal cooperation with the Progressive Party. In 2018, their leader decided to go for an internal vote about which way to go. Should we go right and join the government coalition? Or should we go left and join Labour? He himself wanted to support a centre-left coalition, but his side lost out and he resigned as a leader. And this led to a fair number of people leaving the party, especially in the eastern part of the country. So they lost support outside of the core areas in, in the southwest. Since then, polls have actually shown them just under the threshold for, for most months up until the election, where they, like I said, they scored just below. They won three regional mandates, so they're not out of parliament, but they are severely weakened. And only time will tell if they will be able to rebuild their support. They're still an, an important part in local politics, so they are not uh, worried about the 
party organization as such, but whether they will be able to make it back on the national level is an open question. The Liberal Party was the only former governing party to retain its support. How could they avoid the fate of their coalition partners? It's an interesting question because if you look at the polls, they've been scoring consistently below the threshold for a long, long time. Now, the Liberals are traditionally the party in Norwegian politics with the lowest voter loyalty, which means in essence, that many people like them and could vote for them, but there are few hardcore supporters. As the name said, they are liberal, both in social policies, but also in economic policies. But they're also an important Green Party. A significant part of the Green vote would go to them. Greens who don't really feel uh, feel at home in the socialist left or maybe feel that the, the Green Party is too radical. Also, I would personally harbor a suspicion that some conservative voters have voted tactically to help the coalition partner over the threshold because they there's a big difference between getting over the threshold and getting eight MPs, eight seats. If they had scored a little bit lower, they would be down to two or three seats. If I were a conservative voter, I would probably think in those terms that it would be a better payoff to help the Liberals over the uh, threshold. The right-wing progress party lost its third position and went down from 27 to 21 seats. For the first time in its history, the party was formerly part of the governing coalition, but it quit over a disputed repatriation case. And the party's popularity then reached that of the two largest parties, but later it started to decline. And only after the resignation of its leader, Siv Jansen, her former deputy, Siv Listhoek, could not prevent a sharp decrease. What happened? What is your assessment? It's true that the progressive party had a short boost in the polls after leaving government, but they quickly lost steam and went down to around 10%, which they have been staying on for a long time. Now, traditionally, the progressive party is a protest party, an anti-establishment, anti-big state, anti-immigration party. They support road building, they're skeptical towards climate politics and so on. They claim to represent the ordinary man against the elites. So they have always been on the outside, being free to criticize government policies. So it was quite a change for them to actually be in power. And that was mostly due to their former leader, C. Jensen, who had a clear policy of taking them to power. And there's always been a tension within the party between those seeking power and those wanting to or believing that they can achieve more standing outside the corridors of power. When entering government in 2013, they were very clear that they wanted to avoid the socialist left trap, losing support due to too many compromises. And for the first term, they managed to do that quite well. They did that by being very vocal about government policy they did not support. And Anna Solberg gave them leeway. She allowed them to express opinions different from what the government they were actually part of. And they always made it clear that they would leave government if they thought it would be better for them. In the first period, they managed to hold on to their support, but they started to slide in the polls into the second period. And after the first half of the second period, many people speculated that they would probably leave government in good time before the elections in order to present a more like a pure face again. They did break away in general. 2020. They also changed leaders from Sib Jensen, who had been the leader for 15 years, one who is, has always been seeking power, to Sylvie Listel, who is considered to be a bit more radical, a bit more on the protest side. But being outside of the government for the last year and a half does not seem to have helped them much when it comes to voter support, except after a short period just after leaving. The party has not really had a good campaign. COVID has taken much space and attention. There has been little room to play the immigration card because there has been hardly any movement across the borders during COVID. And the climate issue, where they usually come out as skeptical with little wish to make grand changes, has not really played to their advantage either. On the far left, the formerly Maoist Red Party went up from one to eight seats, which is equal the size of the Liberal Party. How would you explain its relatively good performance? There seems to have been a general move towards the left. Uh, 
in this election and also towards the more radical left. Red, as you say, they grew out of a party called the Workers' Communist Party, which was a Maoist movement that actually contemplated revolution in the 1970s. And they had never really come to terms with the previous support of the regimes in China, Cambodia and Albania. But the new generation can hardly be called revolutionary. Now, the current leadership is, is fairly pragmatic. What they present is this clear and simple message. Give the workers their fair due, limit capitalist profits. And that has found sympathy with quite a lot of people, especially in, in urban areas. After the socialist left became a potential coalition member, more responsible in a way. Left, Red is left as a strong leftist alternative. But the ATMPs, they did not achieve a pivotal position as they wanted because Labour, the Centre Party and the Socialist Left had a majority on the own without leaning on Red. So it remains unclear how much influence they will actually have. The Green Party increased its support but has only three seats. Uh, when in many other Western countries, uh, the support for the Greens has been on the rise. Uh, why is the Norwegian situation different? Well, in Norway, the green vote is divided. We don't have one green party. We have both the Liberal Party, the Socialist Left, and the Greens can all claim to be strong green parties. All parties in Parliament accept the climate changes, but, but there is the disagreement on what to do. Also, in the campaign, the Greens have served up solutions that many deem to be too strong or too categorical, such as setting a date for ending petroleum production in the North Sea, date for prohibiting fossil cars from urban areas. So they're not alone with the green issue, and their solutions seem to be too radical for, for many people. How do you see the role of a new single-issue party, the patient focus, which entered Parliament with one single representative from Norway's northernmost region, Finnmark. That is the biggest region in extent. It's bigger than alone than Denmark, but very few people live there. So 5,000 votes is enough to get a regional seat. It is a protest movement that wants a fully equipped uh, hospital in Alta, the regional capital, and it doesn't really have much more on the agenda. So in a way, you can connect it to the same district protests that has given the center party a boost. Finnmark also has a history of earlier sending single MPs to the parliament. From 1989 to 1993, there was a man called Anders Elner who was presented a party called Future for Finnmark. The new MP for Patient Focus, Irina Oyala, she will probably play little role in practical politics. She will not be in a pivotal position. She will also have to find out where she stands on all sorts of other issues that are not connected to this one issue that she supports. I don't really see her playing much role, as particularly not in the situation that we have now, where I mentioned that the, the probable coalition has a majority on their own. And what can we expect from the coalition negotiations? Uh, this time, the dominance of the Labour is another case any longer. They will need to be more careful in balancing with the potential coalition partners. They have disagreements over policies, including wealth tax, climate taxes, rural policies, EU relations. What is your expectation? What shall we reckon with? In 2005, they had everything prepared. They had done the negotiations before they went to the polls. So everybody knew what the government alternative was. This time, they've all gone to the election saying that we will be fighting this campaign as single parties and then we'll try to agree afterwards. Now all the parties in the coalition need some victories and they need to show that they mean business but they also need to agree so it, it will be challenging as you say. Uh, I would expect them to find some sort of agreement and to form a government and to expect some issues that they can agree on like some rollback of the regional reforms. I mentioned that we've been reduced from 19 to 11 counties. Some of those counties would like to split up again. They become really, really big. The police reform could be up for a new change, policies on, on railway privatizations, also changes in work life. I would 
probably think that uh, they would agree on on limiting the use of short-term contracts, the use of manning agencies. On taxation, there would probably also be some changes. Labour has said that the total tax pressure should not increase much. They would probably want to tweak it towards a change, meaning higher taxes for the wealthy, while normal people would stay more or less on the same level, even go down. One thing that I think we can expect is change of rules to the administration of the Norwegian Pension Fund, ethical rules and how where that fund can invest, for instance. And then probably some symbolic reforms. Green policies will be important, more electric cars, more renewables, but petroleum policies would be very contentious, where the socialist left would like to limit that as much as possible. That would be very difficult to get through in a coalition consisting of Labour and Centre Party also, who are much more supportive of the petroleum industry. And finally, what about the suspension of the Norwegian fund support to Hungary? Uh, would you share the expectation of Hungarian political analysts who expect further disputes between the two respective governments? Well, that has not been, been a big issue in Norway, and I don't really see the new government changing the Norwegian position there. Yeah, we can probably reckon with further bickering with Hungary, sorry to say. <laughs> Christa Dadland, thank you very much for the informative answers and the thorough analysis. We appreciate your contribution to our series. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.